Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts we've read. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. You ever been immersed in something, Michael? Mm, I've been immersed in a lot of things, but I have to say, I don't know if I've incorporated a lot of it. Same. Well, I've often... Let me think of things that I've been immersed in that I've also incorporated. Um, water. I've been in a swimming pool. Uh-huh. Uh, vanilla pudding. Uh-huh. I've been fully immersed in vanilla pudding. Uh, that slime <laughs> that used to be on Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. This is becoming a very different type of podcast very quickly. Well, when I won the Kids' Choice Award in 1997. <laughs> uh, I, I don't talk about that a lot, but when I did do that, I was fully in it. And you can't help but, you know gets in your mouth Mm -hmm. but uh yeah (laughs) this episode we are we're talking about uh gordon kaleha's uh kaleha do we Uh, think i'm i'm not sure i would say so that's my um sort of instinct but uh i know he's like that's like the 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 spanish pronunciation um Mm -hmm. but or close to it and i couldn't find anything to sort of help me in pronunciation this time yeah, well, so if if we are if I'm pronouncing this name wrong the whole time, I am I'm sorry, but yeah, I additionally I looked for like Kaleha pronunciation, and I couldn't I couldn't yeah, come same. down to a, a strong thing. Um, so uh, yeah, Gordon Kaleha's book, uh, In Game, from Immersion to Incorporation, from 2011, published with MIT Press, the MIT Press, I think is the way that they prefer it to be said, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah. Do you know, uh, do, uh, had you encountered this book before? Uh, I had not, uh, and I was interested in it uh, when you brought it up precisely because the whole thing is dedicated to this topic of immersion, which we've talked about in sort of more oblique ways in the past as it's shown up in other books. Um, but you and I also have particular stances on what immersion is and what it means and how it works in, in games discourse. So it was it was interesting to be able to sit down and kind of read a, a whole uh, monograph dedicated to the topic. Yeah, I'd read uh, some of Clay's work across some different things. Um, is both a both an academic and a game designer, or is an academic game designer, depending on I guess uh, on how you want to phrase that. And so I'd, I'd seen some of the game work before, and I'd read some of Clay's essays before, but I'd never read the book proper. Um, and mm-hmm. so that that was partially why I suggested it, um, and. There's kind of a, uh, it's interesting, you know, just to, to, to lay out kind of uh, the land as I see it a little bit, uh, or the terrain. It's interesting to me that, you know, we often talk about, and we mention on the show fairly often, you know, kind of European game studies in a broad sense. And, and generally what we mean by that, or when I say that, I keep saying we, but when I say that, I do mean this kind of uh, Arsif, Jesper Yule, um almost a technical approach to the game to games and culture and I, I mean technical in the sense of uh very finely graded really talked about in a robust and categor categorizable way i don't read many european game scholars who are doing work like the soraya murray book which isn't to say that, that those things don't exist uh, but i don't really think of that as like the predominant style at mm-hmm. which european game studies is approached and that's a whole continent uh of of work but i think there's a typology kind of at work there which is all to say um i I think this is interesting because it is doing european game style work but uh, around a topic 
that or around a, a mode that we that really isn't that kind of thing. So I this is written like a Jesper Yule book is what I'm trying to say, but it is not around the topics of a Jesper Yule book. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a big rule system. It's not a um, analysis of a particular subculture. It is a big, broad philosophical treatise. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of putting it. I I had not sort of put it in that kind of perspective. But yes, you're absolutely right that uh, the I I had noticed, of course, that the whole thing reads in a very European manner, uh, in in the sense that it's very, as you said, technical, very much about uh, proposing and then showing how to use a particular model for understanding uh, some sort of uh, aspect of interaction with games. Uh, but yeah, no, the, the actual topic is much more, uh, broad and philosophical than something like, you know, cybertext, uh, which is very much about like, how do we invent a language to talk about the particularities of what these media objects are doing? Um, and this is much more about how do we, uh, invent a language or how do we devise a model for thinking about, uh, a whole swath of interactions with games uh, and not just sort of, uh, you know, something that we've we've singled out as like ergodicity, for instance, in, in Arseth's case, um, but something that has a lot of currency in, in the ways that we talk about games in the vernacular, right? The ways that players talk about games. So Kaleha is currently uh, the head of the Institute of Digital Games at the University of Malta, uh, which mm-hmm. makes quite a bit of sense to me. That That is a very philosophy-oriented department, I would say. So people like Daniel Vella are there, Stefano Gualini. These are people who are working in European game studies from a philosophical approach. Uh, Stefano mm-hmm. has a book uh, that is specifically about fo- uh, games as philosophical tools. Uh, and Daniel Vela's, uh, in the Game Study Study Buddies Discord, uh, the phrase, people should read Daniel Vela's thesis comes up fairly often. <laughs> um, it, it's it's a, a, a meme. So um, it, it's a, I, I, I'm not surprised to see this kind of work being at the University of Malta, knowing everything else that I know there, but has published regularly since the early 2000s um and uh, has been making games uh for for quite a while uh there too but this is the kalea's only monograph so it's the only book i believe uh that he's done mm-hmm. um yeah I, th- I guess we could just dive right in there's an epigraph to this book mm-hmm. and you and i were talking about it a little bit and you had an interesting thing to say about it i think uh well the the Epigraph is from uh, Jorge Luis Borges's story, Tlon Ukbar Orbis Tercius. Um, Borges, if you're not familiar, is an Argentinian writer from uh, the early, like sort of the, he starts in like sort of the 30s, right? Sort of early 20th century. Um, and he is sort of recognized as a herald of postmodernism um, because his his stories are often very, strange and conceptual uh he, he's sometimes called a speculative fiction writer but uh in in this way that like his speculative fiction is like the, the, the speculative question of a borges story is what would happen if uh, a contemporary frenchman 
rewrote Don Quixote word for word, and then we read his version of Don Quixote word for word in the entire time, ascribed it to him rather rather than Cervantes, right? These sort of like uh, literary uh, conceptual experiments. Um, so Tulun Ukbar Orbis Tercius is a story uh, in broad strokes about uh, the narrator who is a fictionalized version of Borges himself, as, as uh, um, he often is in, in his stories, um, who discovers a conspiracy by a group of sort of international uh, weirdos and, and wealthy people, basically, is, is the only way to kind of uh, put this down, right? And specifically, uh, the, the ringleader is pegged as a kind of American, uh, like an, an, an eccentric American billionaire uh, who turns this secret group, which started as an attempt to like invent a fictional country by like inserting references to this country that did not exist into uh, various encyclopedias and printings of encyclopedias. And so people would, in their research, like happen across mentions of this fictional country and start, you know, maybe like academics would cite it in their work. And then suddenly there would be this entire fictional country uh, that seem to have existed, uh, but no one is quite sure where or how or what the specifics of it were. Uh, this conspiracy in Borges's time, uh, in this story, he discovers it turns toward like the creation of an entirely different world with a basically an entirely different ontological framework, right? Like, what if there were a world where, uh, entities, right, stable entities, objects, did not exist. Uh, and instead, they were kind of uh, constantly changing uh, symptoms of forms, symptoms or forms of uh, uh, forces throughout the world, and, and so on and so forth. And obviously, this like bends back to the idea of creating a fictional country. But the story ends uh, with Borges uh, slash the narrator, realizing that uh things from the fictional world, Tlone, uh, are starting to appear in the real world, sort of almost of their of their own uh, will, but maybe people who are finding out about this fictional other reality are making them, right? It's things like pottery and artifacts and, and coins and things of that nature. Uh, and the, the, the final sort of thought from the narrator is that eventually, like, we are going to adopt the, like, Tlone as, as, like, our world, right? Its philosophical system is going to become our philosophical system. And uh, the epigraph from Borges in this book is the world will be Tlone. Hmm. Now, this is just interesting, I want to note, because uh, this story is often read as Borges's critique of rising uh, fascism in, in the early 20th century, right? The idea of a, a slow kind of gradual buildup of power that then spills over into this... Uh, complete unreality, right? Just the, like people buying into something that is not real and sort of creating a new world wholesale, specifically by their ability to just act as if something is real when it isn't. Uh, also sort of worth pointing out, Borges himself is politically very, very weird, right? He, he hates the Nazis, um, but he also really hates uh, sort of leftist governments. Uh, and he, he capes for uh, when, when uh, Perón, who is one of the, uh, the sort of like populist and sort of nominally uh, sort of leftish uh, dictator of Argentina, um, 
Borges is, is very happy when he gets overthrown and uh, is a spokesperson for the new military regime that comes in. And at one point, there's one Borges quote that's something like, you know, democracy is an abuse of statistics. So politically, right, Borges is not out here like fighting the good fight for the leftists. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it is interesting to take this uh, story that he seems to have uh, sort of intended as as a way of talking about like the ways ideologies, uh, you know, gain power and the way that they actually can materially influence the world um, and put it here at the beginning of this book. Because also, I don't think that this book necessarily follows through on sort of the implications of, of its use of this epigraph. Absolutely not. And especially of what you just said. I mean, I think this is a book that is, um, and I think this book is interesting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm about to say something that's going to sound very negative, but uh, I think the book is interesting. I think it's worth working through. I, I think it is very helpful for me of figuring out exactly where I am. And that's often happening through difference here in that I'm not where Kalea is on some of these issues. But I think this book is allergic to talking about ideology. Mm -hmm. um, it is allergic to talking about the things that form player opinion or the things that bracket or the things that influence a player experience beyond a technical interface in front of them. Um, and I think that makes some of the parts of this book really weird. And it, it made me have a very weird reaction to some of it too. Um, especially because of the method of the book. Before we get into the introduction, just because it's a little bit unclear, maybe we should just talk about the method really briefly. Mm -hmm. um, because as we said a minute ago, uh, it's a, a philosophical book in the sense that it's doing a lot of things that if you read a lot of philosophy uh, that you'll recognize. So it's uh, fairly systematized, um, but it is systematized in such a way as to really pull apart the nuances of... Uh, terms that we might think of as just kind of naturalized or, or implied, right? So mm -hmm. we're going to talk about in just a minute that uh, Clayhouse spends a lot of this book trying to work through the difference between presence and mm -hmm. immersion um, in tracing those things. And those are words, as he kind of points out, those are words that just get used as synonyms all the time. The, their, their meaning is roughly means the same. To be present is to be immersed for many authors uh, that he's working through. And so he does a very, what I would, what I think of as, you know, a um, uh, academic philosophical move to be like, no, let's slow down really quickly. Let's pull apart how these things are used and what they actually mean. Mm -hmm. um, but so that's one part of the kind of method. But the other part is a set of qualitative interviews <clears throat> um, a set of qualitative interviews some of which are done we don't quite know you know it's two example things but we don't get a sense of how many were done or uh was it half and half or something but some were done in world of warcraft and they were done in game in world of warcraft presumably through text chat and then others were done in planet side yes Planet Side, the the uh, MMO shooter game for the PlayStation Three, um, and so this is a game that, or this is a book. It's not a game, probably. <laughs> uh, this this is a book that is philosophical discussion and, and and kind of philosophical parsing of some concepts, but that occasionally will have interviews or, or segments of interviews just kind of plopped in, and then Clayha will kind of read the section through that or, or explain how he got to a particular argument through these. However, I wouldn't say that this is like an anthropological work or sociological work. Um, 
Because it doesn't have any of the kind of apparatus that we would recognize from, say, uh, Celia Pierce's work of T- or T.L. Taylor's work. I mean, mm-hmm. would, would you agree with that, Michael? Uh, precisely. There are there are there are points in this where I was thinking back to Celia Pierce's book and the way that she interviewed her subjects there and how like, you know, comparatively how much more context we got uh, with with those interviews than we do here. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, this has the the feel, I think, some there, there's been a po- mode of popular scholarship over the past maybe 10 or 15 years that um, that I encountered a lot in graduate school that happens, I think, less in game studies than it does in other kind of new media fields, quote unquote, new media. But uh, it's the kind of uh, message board article or uh, the forum post article where mm. uh, what you, you know, what the author does is they go and they find a forum and then they read that forum or they read one thread and they use that thread to do, you know, as kind of a corpus to then work through an issue, right? So they mm-hmm. identify the different commenters in that article or, or whatever or in the in the thread and then they use that to kind of weave into an article to give you the sense of like here are the poles of of argument or the axioms of argument in this community so for example um you know say that we wanted to know about if we were going to write about the newest patch for world of warcraft right and we want to write an, an academic article about that um you could go to the official, you know, Blizzard forum for the patch notes, and then you could look at the comments for that, and then you could, you know, write an argument about about how generally players interacted with this in this very delimited space. Mm-hmm. This feels a little bit closer to something like that to me than it does anthropological or sociological research more broadly. Um, but that's a lot of setup. Let's talk about the introduction, Michael. Do you, you want to walk us through the introduction here? Yeah, sure. I mean, the introduction is is fairly simple. Um, we and, and and I don't mean that as in a negative way. I mean it's simple in a in a very uh, conventional way. We start with a story from um, Kaleha about growing up, uh, you know, in, as a young boy in Greece, and how he and his friends they would play soccer in the streets, uh, and this was as you might imagine, a a huge problem in that people are also coming through the streets. There are vehicles, people need to get places. Uh, And so uh, when they were playing soccer, their games were always getting interrupted because they would have to stop and they would have to move their equipment out of the way and so on and so forth. Uh, And this all changed in in Kaleha's telling with kind of the advent of digital games, which allowed people to move inside and then they could go over to so-and-so's house to play a game rather than having to play out into the street. Uh, And, you know, very interestingly, one of the things he talks about is how working so closely with computers and technological devices sort of made them feel like hip, right? And he, I think, you know, I think this is retroactive recognition, uh, prepared them all for kind of this, you know, technologized adult life, which is like straight up like you know one of the things that uh Kosurik is talking about back in coin operated americans of course that's like americans a very specific context but this idea that uh young boys playing video games in like the 80s uh in some sense were being primed for an adult life where they were constantly interacting with computers and technology so there's a recognition of that that i think is is really interesting um but ultimately uh, what he is interested in is what he says, uh, the, the the feeling of looking at a place in a game uh, during this time and sort of feeling like, 
oh, like that is the place where we are. And the, the specific phrase that gets used here on page two is the, the shortening of the subjective distance between player and game environment, often yielding a sensation of inhabiting the space represented on screen. Um, and this is like sort of our first shot at describing immersion. Uh, or as he, as you've already pointed out, right, uh, presence or immersion, because uh, Kaya's next move is going to be to dig into the ways that this feeling gets talked about and underscore how there are actually two threads of, of understanding what is happening during this subjective, uh, dist or the shortening of this subjective distance. Uh, and then he is going to propose, and this is the introduction, right? So he's, he's saying, this is what the book is going to do. He is going to propose a new way of thinking about this uh, that is not predicated on uh, immersion or presence, the, the two terms that he kind of sees operating normally, uh, but incorporation, kind of his new third term um, that resolves kind of the tensions between presence and immersion, uh, and then also... Uh, can be broken down into uh, what he calls six dimensions of player involvement. So incorporation not only is uh, kind of this alternative to immersion or presence, uh, but also is coming attached with kind of uh, the, the things to look for when you want to talk about, characterize, and evaluate uh, the incorporation of whatever game with whatever player relationship. So that's really the introduction. Yeah, um, I think that that is a, a, a good summary. Um, one small correction. Uh, he is from Malta originally. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think that is uh, very accurate. And I, this is, the, I, I think that this is very similar. If people, people who have been listening to the show for the whole time uh, or all of our episodes would remember that um, uh, uh, Literary Gaming, Michael, who wrote Literary Gaming? Uh, Astrid Insulin. Astrid Insulin's book. Um, it, we, Michael and I had a perhaps methodological um, weirdness there, I guess I should say, right? Because it was it, it is a very uh, technically parsed out book. So it's, it's a book that kind of the first third or so uh, has like the big poles of the argument and then is split up into just explaining those poles for the back half, right? With examples. Mm -hmm. That is exactly the way that this book is also structured. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the, the bulk of what I would consider to be the, um, conceptual work is happening in the first three chapters or so. And then all the chapters after that are the six different, uh, modes that, that we're talking about. Um, uh, the, the ways that I guess to get to incorporation, um, that it's those just being parsed out. So mm -hmm. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here, I think, on these first few chapters, and then we might talk about things we find interesting in the other ones. But they're really just proofs, um, you know, that these things exist, that these different uh, modes of interaction exist, the, the, the X involvement models that they mm -hmm. actually happen um, or involvements. Um, some of which I really agreed with and some of which I do not agree with at all. <laughs> Same. So so, uh, so it'll it'll be uh, an interesting thing here. Games Beyond Games, Chapter One. Any any general thoughts here? Uh, I mean, this is this is the chapter where uh, he also sort of further lays out kind of why why talk about only digital games, right? Or rather, not really only talk about, but um, 
in some ways, this is the book trying to justify why it is specifically interested in digital games as opposed to board games or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, the thing that, like, one of the first things he lays out is something that should sound familiar to, to longtime listeners or readers. Uh, research on games tends to privilege either like the formal aspects of games uh, as me like as objects, right? Um, the experimental or subjective aspects. So like what is kind of the um, like player doing or maybe how is the player feeling? And then the third term is the the sociocultural aspects of gaming communities. Uh, as as we kind of see here, uh, the player involvement model, which is the model that uh, Kaya is uh, putting forth, attempts to, I think, ostensibly talk about all of these things, um, although I don't think it manages to accommodate all of them equally, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. Uh, but then also the, the issue is, okay, so like all these people play games, what is it about digital games? How do we even define games? And we turn, interestingly enough, to, to Wittgenstein? Yeah. Uh, which is, on the one hand, I'm surprised this is really, I think this is maybe the first time this has really come up, Wittgenstein. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it might have come up, maybe, we haven't talked about it extensively, but I, weirdly enough, I think for a certain brand of game studies, and maybe just not the, the kind that we have talked about on the show, but this is like, um, like everyone's escape patch, right? The, the <laughs> argument that's about to be made here, but sorry, sorry to interrupt, <laughs> but yeah, we have not really dealt extensively with uh, Wittgenstein and kind of family resemblance yet on this show. Well, I mean, it, why is this an, an escape hatch, Cameron? What does that mean? <laughs> well, you want to explain how he uses it first, and then I'll, okay. I'll explain the escape hatch part? Okay, so so uh, one of the things uh, Wittgenstein is is interested in is uh, this, this idea of games as families, right? So uh, Wittgenstein says, we have this problem where when we're trying to define what a game is, we can come up with kind of a definition, but we can then come up with another game that we all agree is a game, um, but is somehow different from whatever formal definition we've put forth. And so Wittgenstein says, well, m what if we understood this as about mapping like kind of a, a, a web or a network of resemblances, right? And the specific word used is like family of, of, of resemblances in the sense of maybe like a genealogy, uh, mm -hmm. but... Uh, you know, this game is similar to this game, which is similar to this other game. And in the process, right, in this kind of transitive process, you can end up with games that look very, very different from one another, uh, but can all be kind of networked together through uh, maybe a shared rule set or a shared assumption or a shared mechanic or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and even just the daisy chain of like going from one to the other. So, for example, we can we can all agree that crazy taxi is a game <laughs> yes um and we can all agree that i'm trying to think of like a um another like weird driving game that's a, a far <laughs> as far away as possible but um but but point being is there are um not even just mechanical similarities but either aesthetic or maybe even affective i mean wittgenstein is notoriously vague about these things mm -hmm. um and so uh so it's a kind of daisy chain relationship and i know on the show i say daisy chain quite often but it really is one of of uh loose relations that then gets you somewhere when i think of family resemblance i often think of you know either 
you know, you think of a, a genealogy chart or a family in the sense of uh, like uh, species and then family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as, as a broad mode of organization. Well, it's like, is, oh, so go, go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, as an example, right, like, uh, sidestepping crazy taxi, but like, uh, Mario Kart for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System is very, very different from Grand Theft Auto V. And yet, right, when we look at them both, we can like trace sort of similarities and like assumptions about how do you uh, model and mechanize like driving within a game or something like that. And then, uh, and then, like the additional layer that, that's a that's a that's a helpful thing, right? So we can imagine, uh, you know, a kind of loose relationship between Mario Kart and Grand Theft Auto, but then we can imagine an even more loose and yet still uh, familiar relationship between um, uh, the Grand Theft Auto and the game you play when you're driving in a car. This might be a very American thing, but like when you <laughs> see a Volkswagen Bug, like a mm-hmm. Beetle. And then, you know, you like punch someone on the arm if you see it yes. before them. Yes, right? yes, So yes. like these are these are all daisy chain together, but they have affective and uh, categorizable relations to one another. Right. We recognize all of those things as games and they actually have some weird, weird similarities now that I'm thinking about it. But uh, <laughs> including violence, um, but, uh, but they get to fit under the umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I say escape hatch is that uh, <laughs> uh the this gets evoked here and i think this is mostly used in this way as as a way of getting out of essentialism right mm-hmm. so it means that if we say that wittgensteinian uh, uh uh family resemblances are kind of the, at the core then we don't have to say here's what a game is here are the nine different qualities of a game mm-hmm. you know and if you're outside of one of those qualities well you're not a game right or here are 15 qualities and if you have four of them then you get to be a game Right. So it gets us out of that bind. All of these are things that people really do. Um, However, uh, family resemblance still creates an essentialism. It is just an essentialism of the family. Mm -hmm. Right. So so this is what, you know, Delanda would call population thinking. Um, We are still creating parameters under which the broad family has to exist. Uh, because it is recognizable as part of that family. The the minute that we, in, you know, uh, create something or the minute that we see something that does not have family resemblance, then it's outside of the divide we've made. There's still an essentialism happening. It's just a very, very broad one. Um, and so I, I don't, so it's an escape hatch to me in the sense of like, it seems to get us out of a problem. Um, but the problem that Wittgenstein was trying to get us out of is not the problem that game studies is trying to get us out of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he is interested in, in looking at the the philosophical relationship between things in the world in a broad sense. Um, that's not what game studies people are after here. So uh, when I look at a rock and I look at Grand Theft Auto V, I don't call the rock a game. Maybe in a relationship, with, you know, maybe I can use that rock in a game, but the rock itself is not a game. Mm-hmm. Um, we've still created an essentializing system. We've still created an ontology of mm-hmm. uh, games and not games. Um, so I don't know if it solves the problem it's meant to solve, um, but uh, it's it's certainly a broader system maybe than some other ones that we have seen. Mm-hmm. What are some of the uh, uh, common elements of a game here? Because he gives us uh, family re- uh, resemblances, right? But but still, we got there's some common elements in games that show up more often than not. Well, do you mean all games or do you mean digital or virtual games? Because there is a distinction made between them here. You're, you're right. 
I think I mean virtual or digital games. So one's going to be the player. Did, did you, uh, did you, uh, the, you know, definitions like this are, are always fun for me, um, mm-hmm. you know, coming from the angle that I come from in relationship to game studies. So the player is, quote, a human agent or agents that engage with the game system. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, in my notes, I wrote, I feel like I'm Diogenes here, <laughs> but uh, I think non-humans can probably play games and they obviously play. I mean, we can look at, you know, Brian Sutton Smith or any of those. Uh, mm-hmm. um, Even ants get high. exactly absolutely um and if games are you know just going back a couple pages if games are defined by resemblance then how do we exclude you know pigs playing with digital games or monkeys Mm -hmm. playing digital games or like those uh you know great videos that we see on the internet of like cats playing with ipads how do we distinguish those from uh from games played by humans but i'll i'll let it slide (laughs) i'll let the anthropocentrism slide on this one um two we get the representational sign which is the way the the things people read or interact with to play the game so symbol systems and things like that um we get three uh which is coded rules um Mm -hmm. so in in the heart of the digital game there is some sort of code that is operationalizing everything and and determining how you interact with that system um, four, there are simulated environmental properties, and this is maybe a little bit of a distinguishing thing that we haven't uh, said so far, which is that um, Kalea is really interested in games that have internal spaces, and he's pretty mm-hmm. wide about that that consideration. He brings up Pong at one point, you know, 2D flat space, um, and uh, but still says that has an internal kind of space to it, and he, he this is in one of the later chapters, but he's drawing on... Oh God, the the, the uh, I'm I'm blanking on the guy's name, the French guy who does space, not Lefebvre, oh, but well, the other was, one. Oh God, I was going to say Lefebvre. So who is the other one? Uh, Disserto. Here we go. <laughs> there we Sorry. go. Okay. Uh, so he's drawing on like those types of theorists uh, for talking about how space is made experientially. It is not empty. Uh, you know, it is not a uh, given, as it were. Um, and so there's some sort of simulated environmental property that players can interact with and then have um, a relationship to, whether that is a mechanical one or an affective one or aesthetic one. And then there's five, the material medium itself, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, the thing you're interacting with, um, the controller, the the hardware, things like that. I have a question for you, Michael. Yes. So, uh this to me is like kind of a classic philosophical move. Um, you know, when you when you set off to to do inquiry about the world in a broad sense, what you end up doing is you end up slicing up reality, right? You slice up the real mm-hmm. uh, into any different kind of uh, you know you can do pie cut, you can do square cut, uh, you know whatever the papa will allow. Um, you can you can do that, and then but then you have to kind of discuss of why your version of slicing up the world, reality, into these kinds of pieces, why those things are uh, helpful. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why this slicing up of the world into these elements is uniquely helpful here. Do you have a sense of that? Um, I mean, honestly, no. Uh, 
that this is a thing about this book is that there are a lot of kind of I think overall points or conclusions that it it comes to or things that it's trying to work toward that I don't disagree with um but there are just sort of there's a lot of uh presentation of things and sort of aspects of the model or like what certain terms are going to mean within this model that I wish had more elaboration or clarification. And and I think maybe this is one of them, right? I think you and I are having a similar experience here. Uh, in, in the same way that like the, if the player is a human agent, like how do we, how, like why, why do we delimit it to the human? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and sort of even like the way that uh, this model ends up prioritizing space I, I sort of understand why it's there and what it gets you, but it also means that I have trouble understanding how this model works for other types of games that maybe don't have as much spatiality involved. Mm -hmm. So uh, these are like, I just, it's one of those things where you can't ask the book a question, but I come away thinking, well, like wh why, why is it that spatiality is the most important thing here? Or it's like, it's important enough to get uh, uh, kind of singled out as, as uh, one of these core components of the game. Yeah. The, uh, and I'm, you know, I don't think just to be clear to, you know, to people who are listening, you know, we're not asking these things to be like, well, the book didn't do what I want it to do. Although sometimes that that's just a fact of reading a book. But it's more um, the the kind of, um, I guess, the, the politics or the implicit claim of how you slice the world. So, for example, I am, uh, I'm about to say something that is, I just don't believe in my heart. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe it. But I'm going to say it because it's important to say. Bob Dylan is good. It's not Bob Dylan is good. I would <laughs> never say that. Uh, but it's, it's, you know what? It's a similar... <laughs> Uh, thing why is the player just the player and why is it not the unconscious plus you know whatever subjectivity or something like that why is the, why is the player the human agent one thing and mm -hmm. not something like a uh you know a freudian tripartite projection well, of the human and this is a very good question, because one of the claims that gets made at the end of this book is that the nature of being is composite. That is the precise word that is used. And I had a really big question about that, because the the, the, the claim that is made very, very briefly is that the like human like being right contemporary, like meaning at the moment that this was written uh, 2011 and presumably right up through now, that being is composite or composited now in a way that uh, it wasn't before due to like the hypersaturated hypersaturation of technological media in our lives. Um, so the idea that, uh, you know, I am, I am sort of like going through my day, eating food, like cleaning my house, like doing the work that I have to do. Uh, but I'm also kind of performing, performing myself constantly online, right? I'm performing myself for this podcast. And all of these things are mediated by the technologies around me and sort of like looped back into this, this like weird broad thing that is Michael. That's fine. But because I'm a person who studies history, uh, my immediate thought is, well, how is that like, if that is composite being, 
what how is that different from like a uh, person in the 1400s thinking about how god is at work in the world and channeling all of these various flows of material and souls and in spiritual matter and so forth uh and that like i am implicated in them right mm-hmm. like how does how does like um myself uh as mediated by the church, uh, fit into and distinguish itself from my way of being mediated as a, a, a subject to the monarch. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and like whatever weird folk beliefs I might have about, uh, let's say witchcraft or something. Right. Uh, obviously these things don't have like solid technological components in the way that we tend to think of like smartphones or computers or whatever, but there are, there are objects, right? There are technologies that undergird like monarchical power and, and theological uh, and doctrinal disputes and, and things of that nature and how those things get, uh, you know, sort of disseminated out to, to broad populations. Uh, in other words, like how, how is this b- way of being composited different from uh, ways that we have been composited in the past? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what that, you know, uh, the, and the reason if you've never listened to the show before, the reason that, I, that that was an unthinkable thought for me is because psychoanalysis is not, not for me. Right. But, um, and, and similarly, I'm, I'm not a historian, but what, what's interesting here too, is that the way I would read that, right. And I think that, you know, obviously the way you're reading it is informed by your, um, academic background. The way I would read that is that, you know, this is Heideggerianism being snuck in through the back door. This is techne. This is an argument about techne and about the changing of being, but also Heidegger makes that argument by talking about the aeon, right? Uh, talking about mm-hmm. different periodizations of the way that that being is produced. And I don't know that I think that having a smartphone produ- is a new aeon. I don't know that I think that it is a uniquely different chain of being in the way that I, I think that probably existing under... Um, monarchical power in the middle middle ages uh the way that that is uh, an ontologically uh or or uh a, an adjustment in being uh, you know in the entire order of being um you know i don't i mean maybe maybe facebook is mm. i'd have to think about it i haven't thought about it enough but anyway that's all to say you know they, these are not uh you know weird nitpicking arguments that we're making they're they're arguments about method you know there are questions about method why this method why this mode of engagement and not something else. And I think that, you know, this is something that as I'm working on my own project, and Michael, you're also working on your your own uh, academic book right now. Uh, these are things that I think about quite a bit. You know, where do I need to signal why I'm doing one thing instead of another? And where do I just state the thing that I'm doing? And I don't think mm-hmm. there's a right answer necessarily. But uh, reading this, I certainly had questions about, you know, why this slicing of the universe and not some other uh, thing or why not a get this why not a composite of some other <laughs> methods that already exist but um that's basically what the that first chapter has going on for it i mean this kind of question of uh how does a player's subjective experience get put together mm-hmm. um and and what are the elements that kind of run into one another to make that happen um but that's in service of something else. It's in service of uh, discussion of immersion and what immersion is in chapter two. Mm-hmm. Do you want to you want to talk us through chapter two? Yeah. Uh, so um, the interesting thing about chapter two, to me at least, at the, at the start, was how when we talk about these two kind of ways of 
of thinking about the player relationship to the game uh, that is umbrellaed under the term immersion, um, but actually we have, you know, uh, presence and immersion. The genealogies of these terms are traced. So uh, presence is traced to Marvin Minsky, Mm-hmm. Which was kind of surprising to me. In your notes, you point out, right, there's there's a, a Heideggerian tradition here talking about presence. Um, and yeah. I kind of expected us to go more in that direction. So when when like it is straight up stated, like he's he's going to Marvin Minsky, who is whose idea specifically is is telepresence, right, or uh, sort of technologically mediated presence. I was like, oh, that was a little unexpected. And then immersion uh, is sort of traced to Janet Murray mm-hmm. uh, in Hamlet on the Holodeck. Which, again, I thought was really interesting. And not to say that, like, that book is not about immersion, because there's a, there's a whole chapter in, about it and, like, various bits of other chapters. Um, but it, it speaks to what we were just talking about, where it, like, this book's uh, citational apparatus kind of goes up to, like, the sort of the edge of the digital and doesn't think back beyond that mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way that um, I think could have at least help the argument. And this is maybe one of the ways in which like the book should have done what I would have done, uh, which is looking at uh, how these things become digital, right? Like that's sort of what I am interested in as a person who does kind of more historical work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anyhow, um, the, the basic problem, right? Is that uh, people, when they talk about immersion, sometimes they will say immersion and they will mean something like presence, right? That when, when a player is immersed, they are uh, like present to or in uh, uh, the game or the world or the system somehow, right? That, they, that something feels like it's really there, right? Is that fair? Do you mm-hmm. agree? Yeah. Um, so uh, for instance, right, uh, this is a sort of later example, but if you hear really, really good sound, uh, like a really, really good sound design. And for instance, let's say there's music playing and you can some, I, I've had this experience, right. Where, or I've had like really high def uh, headphones on or something. You can almost hear like the whispering against the guitar strings or something like that. Not just the notes that the guitar is making, but like the sound of uh, sort of like the, the pick or something like, you know, touching, touching the case of the guitar mm-hmm. um, that, that feeling of, reality of presence of the instrument so that's uh one model and then there's immersion as uh, in the way that sort of immersion can get reread here is immersion as transportation right i have been taken from wherever i am as a player and i have been immersed into another world i have been transported uh or something along those lines so First of all, then, um, the problem is that people will use the word immersion when they mean both of these things, right? Which, uh, to to um, Kaleha's kind of point, uh, represent different sort of movements or, like, uh, have different underpinning assumptions about who or what is being affected and how they are being affected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there are sort of other concerns that one might raise here, uh, which is specifically, for instance... Uh, going back to the 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 sound uh example i can't remember the name of the guy he is criticizing for this um but i agree with him uh the the guy is saying that like even if you had never been to the orchestra if you heard a a sufficiently like good right high definition recording played on sufficiently good speakers of an orchestra you would feel as if the orchestra were around you 
Um, and what uh, Kalea points out is that if you have never like like if you have never been to the orchestra, like why would why would that be the case? Like why would you sort of know what being at the orchestra was like enough to know that you feel like you're at the orchestra, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so there's this that. person is Mel Slater. Okay. Uh, and then uh, the sort of problem with immersion, and this is also interesting, is that immersion, uh, according to Kalea, uh, is a problem because it can be used with regard to film and books. And also people seem to sometimes say like they were, immer- uh, how does he put it? Actually, there's a good uh, way of phrasing this on page 22. Um, yeah, we need to distinguish between uh, quote, between simply imagining one is present in a scene and the considerably different phenomenon of having one's specific location and presence within a virtual world acknowledged by the system itself. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, does that seem fair? Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Uh, so so th- that particular thing, uh, uh, the question of immersion as as uh, recognition, I think, is actually the word that he, used, uh, he uses a little bit later on. But I'm pretty sure I, I got to look at my notes here. Yeah. Recognition. Mm-hmm. Recognizing and reacting is a big part of like proper uh, immersion. If immersion is just the absorption model. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can do it in films and you can experience it in books. So, for example, if you can read a Jane Austen novel and you can think, oh, it's like I'm right there in the parlor. Uh, mm-hmm. Or if you, you know, uh, watch Arrival and you're like, oh, I, I'm, I feel like I'm right there in that in that weird alien pod talking to those aliens. <laughs> um, you know, th- those are qualitatively different than a quote-unquote immersion in games because uh, no matter what I do, no matter how much I yell at that alien, Mm -hmm. I cannot be reacted to by the alien. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I've been thinking recently about the the jump scare. uh, And Mm -hmm. and weirdly enough, Arrival, the science fiction film about language and the safer war hypothesis, uh, it actually has a jump scare in it. Oh, oh, yeah. If you remember that. Uh Um, And so... And so to me that that this opens up a question of what do what does it mean for something to be immersive if we can actually uh, experience the surprise or the speculative moment of of what we thought would happen and then that not happening then that seems to me to be uh, uh, I don't know fairly in com- uh, fairly communicatory at least mm-hmm. or whatever I'll bracket my own my own arguments here. Um, to say that that if the digital environment or if the, the world of the game recognizing you and reacting to you are so important for a true theory of immersion, right, or, or a way of doing it, then that actually requires us to really think about what those two terms mean. Mm-hmm. Because I, I promise you there are lots and lots of people who have written about those two things. Uh, so, for example, something that I was reading again the other day that came up is uh, Austin Walker's classic piece, uh, you know, classic, weird, weird to say that, but his uh, classic piece on race in Animal Crossing mm-hmm. um, that it, previous to the current Animal Crossing game that exists right now, what is the title, do you know? Uh, the new one, New Horizons. New Horizons. So previous to that game, you could just only be a white avatar. You could only have a white avatar in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Austin's piece is about going to the beach and trying to darken uh, his character's skin to make it more representative, to feel like he is being recognized or interacted by, reacted to by the game. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that when we begin to to use words, and this is something that kind of um, began to work at me throughout this entire book, that there are there's such a, an attention to language and and a fine grain parsing out different concepts, and then sometimes those things are get, taken as a given by themselves, and when they're taken as a given, that carries a lot of weight to me. Mm-hmm. So that's all to say that the word recognizing. Uh, mm-hmm. Not all recognition is recognition, right? Mm-hmm. Not not all uh, not all people are equally seen by a game, and not all people are recognized appropriately by a game. Um, and so, I think maybe the response to that would be, well, misrecognition is still re- recognition, right? There's still the the system of the game is still speaking to you. The system of the game is still knowing that you're there, right? So when I'm walking through Orgrimmar and, uh, you know, the, the the goblin dude who's standing there who yells at every character who comes in and says, welcome to Orgrimmar or whatever, and get in a big bubble over its head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is still happening no matter, you know, who it's happening to. But it seems to me that if recognizing and reacting are such critical parts of a digital game, it seems that we need a theory of misrecognition or a theory of appropriate reaction in order to actually talk about that. And I think, again, the response there would be, uh, you know, even if misrecognition doesn't happen, uh, that it's the fact that you are embodied in a space and that the reaction happens that that matters more than the quality of that uh, recognition or reaction. But I don't know if that is sufficient to me as like a theory of video games. You know, I think I need more. Uh, I think I need more on that to, to feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I felt the same way, right? In, in my notes, one of the, when, so one of the things that gets said is like, when we identify with a character in a movie or a book, um, or imagine we are in the same room as the protagonist, we have no way of altering the course of events, no way of exerting agency. That's fine. But as I sort of immediately thought, the act of identification itself is, uh, uh, an exertion of like agency in this way, right? Like, you don't act like maybe, you know, you can you can be surprised that you find yourself identifying with someone. But at the same time, if you're identifying with uh, either a player avatar in a game or a character in a book, uh, you are doing something right. You are you are sort of like extending yourself and sort of willfully extending yourself in a way um, that if, if we want to make a distinction between them, I think we need to to have a finer grain on it. We can't just mm-hmm. say that. uh this thing reacts to me in a way that the other thing doesn't. And therefore the way that I'm extending myself is different. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, I, I'm really glad that that you phrased it that way because it kind of made me, made me think of this thing, which is that this model as it positions literature would suggest that there is no way to be focalized or to, to, to be in the subjective position of a character that you don't like. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, that 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 there. This suggests that there is no set of dispositions that one can actively have about characters that we are embodying, quote unquote, or experiencing the subjective position of, which is patently false. Right, that that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I the what I wrote in my notes here, which maybe sums up my position, is that I think that most games recognize me in the same way that an automatic door does, like at the grocery store, mm-hmm. um, like it knows I'm there. Uh, but the the quality of knowing that you're there, and to be fair, knowing you're there is a big deal. If you're walking mm-hmm. toward the automatic door and it doesn't recognize you, you're going to run into a door. 
Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a, that's going to be a problem. But we also know plenty of recognition systems, right? So the famous case of uh, if you have a connect in a room that is not well lit enough that it just doesn't see dark skin, mm-hmm. um, that is that's a historical issue. There's a a, a a recent case too. This is not in games, but where um, oxidization monitors uh, that people are buying for uh, you know to check to see if they're getting the appropriate amount of oxygen through their masks that some of those don't recognize dark skin either due to the the uh, uh, sensors that are in them. Mm-hmm. And so, right, right, the the mode of technical recognition is a much broader and much more complicated, I think, issue, um, you know, that is both um, uh, ideological, it is technical, um, it is political. Um, yeah, just, this is a long time spending on this one thing, but it's really something that really kind of rubbed me in a weird way and made me think a lot about it. So, mm-hmm. so I wanted to make sure that we talked about it. But all of these things, um, it, what, what Kaleha says is that whether you're talking about uh, immersion or whether you're talking about presence, what is underneath those things is involvement. Yes. A, bro- a broader system of involvement. And that's what we're here in this book to talk about is player involvement. And I do not disagree with that. Like, I think that as a, I, I like that as a way of reframing um, this question of immersion, uh, precisely because uh, because of the way he is approaching this question, uh, uh, Kaleha doesn't end up being sort of like there are ways in which he can be prescriptive about what does or doesn't facilitate immersion. But uh, the model that ends up getting proposed, I think, is is more widely uh, applicable so for instance he talks about how uh the the movement from the like he he talks about like miniatures right like uh if you're playing an rts game he he calls these games of like miniatures where you are moving around uh all these little units on your screen and i would actually say uh that this also applies to like isometric rpgs um mm-hmm. and i think it's interesting that those don't show up that games of miniatures are just almost uniformly rts's here mm-hmm. uh but games where you're kind of looking down on a field of of view and you are moving little tiny actors around in one way or another, uh, that involves you in a way that, uh, say, the move to a first-person perspective, and of course here I'm thinking about the move from isometric or sort of pseudo-isometric to first-person in the move from Fallout 2 to Fallout 3. Check out Too Much Future, our other show where Cameron and I talk about the Fallout games. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, the the point here uh, that, that Kalea is making, and I agree, right, is that these things both involve you, right? They involve the player, but they uh, involve you in different ways, right? The involvement has a different kind of experience or feeling to it. Um, and I think that that is a good way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the player involvement model? Yeah. So the, the player involvement model is, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, Kaleha's uh, a sort of offering to resolve this tension between uh, both presence and immersion and how those things don't necessarily make sense or work and get around sort of what he thinks of as, as the monolithic perspectives of uh, what happens when people are like, well, if you want a game that's immersive, here's what you do, right? Or a game is going to be the... He he um, pulls in uh, Salen and Zimmerman here, right? Uh, when they talk about the immersive fallacy, the idea that well, if you want a game to be more immersive, you make the graphics more realistic, uh, and like that's not what they are saying, right? They are they are like critiquing that idea, um, and and Kalea like 
pulls that up too, right? Like that that realism or sort of naive realism, we might say, is not necessarily uh, what is going to be most involving. Instead, uh, we can break up the ways that like, so the player involvement model takes the, the experience of playing a game and subdivides it into six dimensions of involvement. Uh, six ways that a game might be involving or interesting to a player. Uh, and then these six dimensions operate, uh, and this is a, kind of a strange way of thinking about it, but I think I know why it happens, uh, in two temporal phases, the macro and the micro. So uh, just for example, uh, kinesthetic involvement is how you uh, as a player are supposed to move your body when you're playing a game, whether this is because you're using motion controls on the Wii or whether you're using a Microsoft Kinect or whether you're just using a normal controller. Uh, kinesthetic is sort of, you know, the, the, the physical actions that your body is going to undertake in order to give input to the game and the game is going to have some sort of feedback on that. The micro of that is sort of the moment to moment what are you doing when you are playing the game right when you are doing this rts like what are the movements you are doing uh how are you doing them how often are you doing them and so on and then the macro is this more um amorphous phase of like before the game uh, you know, how do you imagine or think on or reflect on your relationship to this genre or these types of movements or after the game? What was it that was pleasurable about these movements that you're like, oh, I want to I want to play that game again, right? Like that is a thing that I want to do again. Or how do you contextualize these things uh, sort of within a broader context when you are not focused on the the game itself? Yeah, the thing that's really weird to me here is that that micro and macro are words we use for scale mm -hmm. right like they, they are scale. scalar terms when when really as you just said i think your your description is right based on how i read the book as well but that that to me seems to be uh it's a temporal relationship right he even calls mm -hmm. it a temporal relationship so it should probably be something i think it would be more appropriate I, i'm not going to say it should but i think it would be more appropriate if we thought of micro as something like proximal and we thought of macro as something like longitudinal, um, mm -hmm. you know, across or, or, uh, you know what? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to be a Duranian about this. Diachronic and synchronic seem oh. appropriate terms here as well, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually wonder, I, I have not thought about this until this very moment. I just said it, but I wonder if these things were diachronic and synchronic at some point, and someone was like, those don't make any sense. No one knows what those words mean, <laughs> except for Derridians. You need to find different language because this is actually pretty similar to diachronic and synchronic uh, mm -hmm. in the way that, that Derrida uses those. If you're curious about that, it's probably better for you to look it up than for me to explain it. But um, but yeah, this, this whole system generates a graph. Or is it a graph? I don't even, a figure. Yeah. That I cannot read. And I think historically across the show, I've demonstrated that I don't understand any visual depiction of information. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm willing to own up to this, but uh, I will put it in the show notes. That's the only yeah. thing I can say. Well, I'll, I mean, I, I looked at it and I had an immediate understanding of it in terms of it looks like a Pokemon power chart. <laughs> it does look like a Pokemon power chart. 
like uh except i think for pokemon i don't know if this has changed in more recent games but it used to you could like uh make a little um pentagon uh and have each corner mapped to to a particular type of stat and then you could uh you know like visually represent a, a pokemon's strength and weaknesses based on how you uh sketched in the interior of this pentagon and it's it's similar to that uh except it has uh, a hexagon because it's uh six axes instead of five Hmm. I can see how it could be used that way, but but the I, the problem for for me reading it that way, and again, I'll we'll put this on Twitter. And I'll put it on on the show note. So it it is a hexagon, but the outer layer is macro, and the inner layer, the further you go into the center of the thing, is micro. Meaning that if a game is almost wholly focused on the micro move, you know, the 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 micro temporality of of the thing. So, for example, I can think of a game like Desert Golf. You mm-hmm. know, uh, is I I don't think has much. Uh, it might have some general reflection about it, but the vast majority of your like universe focus on this game is happening in the micro movement of of kinesthetics, but also probably uh, the focus on aesthetics itself. Um, I I. I don't know how much uh, leaning on the macro here it's doing. And so it would just be like a dot in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know how. That's all to say. I, I, I obviously don't understand how any kind of visualization works. And <laughs> I, uh, I had a hard time with this one, too, like I do with all of them. So hmm. someone recently in an academic article that I published, uh, they said, would you like to put a chart in? And I said, no, I would not like to put a chart in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll plug it at the end of the show. Stay tuned for the end of the show for my plug that doesn't have a chart. But um, so, yeah, so so that's basically the, the idea here that there are two or that there are six different systems that uh, that games are involved in. Uh, digital games are involved in. They have a uh, two sets of temporality to them. You know, they happen in the long term and they happen in the short term. And uh, that's that's how they work. Mm hmm. Is there more here? There's a lot of uh, distinguishing again in this chapter. And we're in chapter three. I don't know if, if we said that before, but there's a lot of distinguishing here again between how does this work in a game versus how does it work in a movie versus how does it work in literature to the point where uh, it, it's really just arguing against those other forms in favor of this one. Um, how, how do you feel about that in, in this book? I mean, do you, th- do you think that those things are persuasive? I mean, I'm not the the best person to ask here, right? Because my entire orientation toward games as a field is about arguing that they are not, in fact, that distinct from from prior forms of of cultural production. Mm-hmm. That they uh, merely like uh, push certain aspects of cultural production to the center uh, in ways that other things did not. So, for instance, um, this is also the chapter where uh, Kaleha talks about. Uh, ergodicity, which he's of course pulling out of uh, Arseth, um, which is about sort of like the the non-trivial effort that must be expended in order for you to, uh, uh, in 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 Arseth's case, right, to to navigate or in some way like interact with a hypertext or a cybertext, um, and here becomes a way of talking about like the he says the 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 effort implicit in the ergodic. This is page forty one. Is first and foremost a disposition and readiness to act, not merely the action of pressing a button or pulling a joystick. So again, to to a point that I've already said, 
like I think all like literature and film both require you to take a disposition toward them and then follow through on that disposition, right? It's not like watching a movie is not just sitting down and turning your eyes toward the screen. Reading mm -hmm. a book is not just putting your eyes on the page and flipping the pages. Um, you have to have a disposition there. So that's one of the things that I think about. Um, and then uh, he also gets into how like an RTS uh, requires you to uh, put your attention on a whole bunch of different things in, in sort of different scales and in different contexts, right? You might be checking on uh, a specific unit uh, that you have off um, maybe scouting for resources. And then you might pull back and you might check on like, well, what structures am I building? And then you might look over and see uh, what you can see of the enemy's uh, base. If you can see anything at all and try to figure out what they're doing and then think like, well, in short term, what do I have to do in long term? What do I have to do? Uh, and my question ends up being here, right? Um, do games spread attention differently just because they spread it, let's say, more widely and thinly, right? If I'm reading a book, let's say I'm reading a Henry James book, right? Something with a really diff difficult prose style. I'm going to spend a lot of time unpacking a really long sentence and try to figure out exactly what is happening in that sentence and how the character's dispositions are changing and what this means for the overall plot. Um... I, I, I take the point, right, that I am not necessarily like jetting around on a screen and checking this unit or that unit, right? I, I will acknowledge that difference. Um, but, you know, is is there a, a qualitative or a sort of fundamental difference to what is happening to my attention there, right? Yeah. Um, uh, oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, and like, this is all to say, like, there are things that I very much like about the way that this is being approached, which is to say, like, you know, uh, Kaleha talks about uh, how different games will have different, like, because of these six dimensions of involvement, some games might rely on uh, others uh, and not some, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there might be a game that's very kinesthetic and spatial. There might be a game that's very narrative heavy. Uh, and uh, the there is there is no one thing that is always going to be the core of what involvement is in this model, which I like. And I like that things can be sort of um, composite or hybrid. Uh, but it just it still has that question for me of, uh, well, aren't other things composite and hybrid? Right. What is what is uniquely uh, composite about about a game? Yeah, there, there's a there's a desire, a strong desire here. And I get it it's a game studies book, uh, you know, of wanting to have medium specificity that even if there's a big, broad family resemblance, that big, broad family resemblance is mediated through very specific qualities. And those qualities matter. I, I think what, I think reading the book and, and kind of coming to my own conclusion about it, like reading through the, the rest of the book as we're about to start talking about, um, I think what I would say is just games do these things uh, in different ways than other media. And they are more often than not playing with all of them in a way that other media are not. Um, so for example, when you were talking about the RTS and the demands on you uh, mm -hmm. as a player, I think what Kaleha, and this is something I think you alluded to, but didn't like play all the way out to the very end of the argument. But the, you know, at the end of the day for Kaleha, the, the fact that I can take my little RTS troops and then make all my decisions about them. And then the, the game system can respond to those, mm -hmm. right. And like be frictional and uh, create conditions under which I have been wrong. Basically mm -hmm. um, that it's 
it's dialectical. Uh, the fact <laughs> that I can be in relationship with in a in a dialectical relationship with the game is the thing that makes it the game part matter. But I 100% agree with you. Uh, I've been watching a lot of heist films recently. I, I don't know why. My, my wife and I have just been watching a lot of those. And heist films are entirely predicated, right? At least on the first viewing, on mm-hmm. you making assumptions, you making movements in your brain about what you think is happening. And then the film saying, no, no, no. What you thought was happening is actually wrong. Here's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And and the joy of watching a heist film, at least for the first time, is what is happening in this thing and how do all these pieces fit together? I mean, you know, watch a, an Oceans film. Um, and what's interesting about that is when it happens in uh, ways that in film, when it happens in ways that are too far afield, that are too unpredictable, that are too um, uh, oppositional to how you might be approaching them, people reject them. So, for example, Ocean's 12 is a movie that is pilloried for uh, it's it, it, basically the whole plot happening somewhere else, right? That that everything <laughs> we see in that movie, spoilers for the film, sort of, everything we see in the movie is like uh, a um, uh, distraction from the actual plot that's going on. And people reacted really negatively to that, right? Mm-hmm. But it's the exact same affective space as or or the same sort of mental uh, relationship as I put all of my RTS troops over here on the left and uh, the enemy came from the right. It's the same kind of friction that's being gen- generated there. And uh, it, even worse, right, if the game told me, hey, there's going to be enemies coming from both sides and they only come from the right, I'm going to have that Ocean's 12 experience. So, you know, I, I think uh, this, is, this is a case, right, where both you and I are just primed for, for <laughs> not wanting games to be unique. And, and, and I want to say, too, right, like, you know, I... Over the next several months, in every episode, I'm going to be mentioning the book that I'm writing, not because I want to talk about it all the time, but because these are questions I'm thinking of all the time, because I'm writing this book fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, this question, I'm writing about speculation in games, and I think that games speculate differently than other media. But I don't think games do speculations that other media can't do. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, a difference here. I think that there are ways of grabbing human beings in this book, in the Kalea book, in in-game, that other media can't do. They just don't have the capability of doing so. And that is a, uh, I mean, it's an essential difference. That's that's an essentialism of the media that's going on here, where I don't really see that same essentialism happening, necessarily. So mm-hmm. that's a long digression to talk about Ocean's 12 for some reason. But <laughs> uh, we do get around to our good friend uh, Johan Hozinga here. Uh, yes. Do you have any thoughts about this This kind of, uh, it's a little section at the end of the chapter talking about how the magic circle is perhaps not very useful in this model. Mm-hmm. Well, on the one hand, right, uh, I agree, the magic circle is not very useful. Uh, thanks to this book for agreeing with me on that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and overall, I will say that one of the reasons that uh, uh, the magic circle is not useful here is also something that I agree with, which is to say that uh, in in the way that Huizinga's idea of the magic circle gets ported into game studies, it's very easy to read this metaphor because that's what it is, right? It's a it's a metaphor um, that is dropped very casually in the first ten pages of the book. That what a game does is there is let's say we exist in a space that we shall call reality, and uh, when we play a game 
we take a, a, a space of reality and we demarcate it in some way. And we're like, in this space, in this circle that I have just drawn in some way, right, rhetorically or, or, or literally, perhaps if we're talking about like a, a, a game played on a field or a pitch, within this space, uh, the activities of reality shall be distinct or different in some way, right? Uh, we're going to do things according to different rules. We're going to have uh, risks that don't map to sort of like the the realities of risk as we exist in the world, like in terms of like maybe death or starvation or, or uh, you know, loss becomes loss of the game rather than maybe loss of a resource or something like that. The, the move that is made here in talking about the magic circle is that it takes for granted the idea that reality existed before we drew the magic circle, and that those things are fundamentally at the end of the day kind of separate or distinct from each other. And this is where I think, like, this is why Borges is, is the epigraph here, uh, because, uh, you know, Tlon Ukbar Orbis Tertius is all about a essentially a magic circle that is in fact a black hole right that envelops the world uh it it uh shows how people can uh create a delimited space but then how that delimited space right this this fictional country or the fictional world that it is a part of um as uh sort of it operates changes the world outside of it right and we get into this weird feedback loop um where reality ends up being not this distinction between, let's say, like play and reality, uh, but that like play itself is is a function of is is constructive of reality, which is a thing that I agree with. Mm -hmm. uh, James Hans. Yep. What do you think about it? I have like weird philosophical disagreements here in the sense that I don't I don't think that reality like personally, philosophically, academically, I don't think that reality is the things that human beings construct. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I am a, a strong materialist. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a speculative materialist, uh, mm -hmm. um, like me as you, right? I, I mean, I'm a realist in the sense that a materialist realist in the sense that I think there is a material world that exists beyond human beings and that has its own, uh, construction that has no relationship to human beings at all. What what I find confusing here is that I think that um, the la the language I would be happier with, and this is like you know the finest of fine grained things, but the the language I would be happier with would be uh, rather than Kalea calling these things reality, mm -hmm. um, is if he used the language of world, which is mm -hmm. kind of out of Merleau Ponty. I would say is the kind of strongest thing, but when we talk about what humans in their perceptive capability create and experience and then share. That to me is not reality in the sense of the real. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it is, in fact, just world. And that allows us to talk about uh, the different ways that it's constructed, the different ways that it's made. Uh, in the actual section here, he, um, uh, the, I, I guess I'll just read the paragraph really quickly. It's not a long one. Uh, he says, uh, he's, after he is talking about this ermine piece that kind of gets him here, he says, uh, quote, reality cannot be bracketed by closed or open circles, even if we could argue that such bracketing is logically possible. Reality does not contain play. 
like any other sociocultural construction, play is an intractable manifestation of reality. A consideration of games, whether from the perspective of the game as an object or as an activity or the game's role in the wider community, is a consideration of reality. As Chiel Taylor has argued, such a perspective ignores the grounded analyses of the analysis of these objects and activities while sidelining the fact that they are very much part and parcel of everyday reality. In my own reading, the, mm-hmm. the material reality that we exist in has play as a function of it. That's the kind of James Hans argument. And then within mm-hmm. that, humans in their perceptive capability and in their cultural interactions with other ones, they make world and play kind of infects or runs into that or frames that. And then games are obviously inside of it. So I think I have just a very different ontology of the universe than uh, uh, than Kalea does. But um, I think that there's some linguistic m- mixing here or some technical mixing here that if pulled apart could be a little bit more compelling for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's kind of uh, the section. Um, I, I think this, the whole section on Huizinga here uh, makes me think that this is a, um, uh, like a peer review kind of thing of like, mm-hmm. well, if you're doing all this bracketing off of different things, well, what about the magic circle? Isn't that it? And it feels like he had to step in and be like, well, here's how those interacts and here's how these things interact. And I think ultimately at the end, much like immersion, the player involvement model or involvement gets underneath these things because for him it is a process through which human beings generate reality, period, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is more fundamental than the way that that magic circles get made. Mm -hmm. Um, Fun doesn't matter. No, fun doesn't matter. That's our sort of parting note. And it's like, yep, I, I also agree, right? Fun is uh, not a good criterion for understanding how games work because it is just wildly subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about Vince Staples' uh, song fun? Uh, that's also wildly subjective. <laughs> oh, okay. So the rest <laughs> of the book is just chapters on these different involvement models. I think we have more to say about some and less to say about others. And so we're going to kind of blip our way through them. We'll, we'll briefly explain them and then talk about what we found interesting. They're, all, they're full of examples and and uh, I think some are, uh, are, are more chaptery than others are, just to be frank. Some feel much more like lit reviews of like, mm-hmm. here's what people have said about these things. Um, and so uh, if you're, we're going to give you enough, to, you know, dear listener, we're going to give you enough to where if you're interested in these things, you can go and check it out on your own. Um, the first is kinesthetic involvement. We've talked about that quite uh, a bit already, but uh, the, I, the idea here is the manipulation of the game system itself. Right. Uh, the the only thing that I would add, like I gave sort of this as a run through for an example, uh, the only thing that I would add to what I said there is that this chapter is also, uh, it, it highlights some of the... Um, the weirdness of how the like player surveys get incorporated mm-hmm. uh, because there is a player who is known as Blade Runner who, uh, and this is such a strange part of, of, of this thing. Uh, he, the, the player, I guess it's a, he Blade Runner talks about immersion as Quan mm-hmm. Q U A N, right? This is like his, and this isn't explained, right? It's like pulled in like with like what the like user Blade Runner calls Quan and Quan uh, is like how this player describes um, 
like uh, the immediacy of playing a game, right? Or like what we might call a flow state where things are not happening in the game because you're pressing buttons, right? Because you have kinesthetic movement, but because, and this is the quote, because your mind is willing those actions, which there's a couple of things like to, to work through here. One is that I looked up Quan and I don't know if I spelled it, but Q-U-A-N. I don't know where this comes from or what it means, if this was something that the player made up or decided to apply or if they're pulling it out of a different context. Uh, mm-hmm. I look I try to look it up and it's just it's a, it's a lot. It's a surname, right? Um, well, yeah, and, it's Rich Homie Quan. Uh, <laughs> circa about, about 2012, I think. Yeah. Well, then uh, but the, the thing is, like, uh, uh, Kaleha doesn't explain that. Right. It just just like sort of presents it as like self-evident of like why this word is being used or how it's chosen. And I like I want some just some unpacking there. Like, what mm-hmm. is this? Like, why? What? Huh? Um, well, it seems but, like Blade Runner has like their entire own aesthetic theory of video games that we yeah. only got like a chapter of. <laughs> that's that's what it feels like. Right. Yeah. Like that this person has developed an entire language for talking about their experiences in games. But that's not sort of signaled and not really sort of thought about. Um, and then also, like, the the issue with the way the way Blade Runner says that uh, when you're playing a game, those things are not happening because you're, you're pressing buttons. They're happening, quote, because your mind is willing those actions. Like, guess what? Your mind is willing those actions. Right. It's willing you to press the button to make those actions happen. <laughs> yep. Like, uh, and so there's a way in which uh, it, it, I mean, on the one hand, it's a great example of what uh, Kaleha called the the subjective or the, sh- the, the shortening of subjective distance. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that I think is actually important about, like, looking at this is to kind of take a critical look at the player vocabulary and think about, like, well, when do they shorten their subjective distance? How do they do that? How do they imagine it? Right. Like, mm-hmm. what are the ways in which that subjective distancing uh, gets closed? But we don't get that. A hundred percent. I think that that is uh, that's going to come up a couple times here while talking about these chapters is that I think that something that is crucial that is missing from this book and I understand why it's missing from the book. It's and it's because the, this kind of philosophical method doesn't really have the tools or the interest, just to be frank, in, in talking about them. But players and, and anyone who plays a game, you and I, Michael, and literally everyone who has ever played a game comes to a, a game with um, ways that we understand that game already and ways that the game is understanding us. And more importantly, mm-hmm. too, or just as important, the way that that game's marketing is understanding us and, and genre expectations, right? Which is sometimes mm-hmm. part of that. Uh, this is, you know, if, if you want to read about this extensively, this is what Shira Chess's Ready Player Two is all about, right? This is designed mm-hmm. identity. Every single one of these MMO players has a designed identity. They are brought into a relationship with this game in some kind of way. They are understood by the game subjectively in some kind of way. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not some friction on their end, right? You can be understood by the game in one way. Uh-oh, they're coming <laughs> to get me, the subjectivity police again. Uh, but uh, uh, you can be, in fact, just to, to reference something I was talking about earlier, you can be misrecognized by the game. Right. You mm-hmm. can understand you in a way that you don't understand yourself or that you don't understand your relationship to it. 
But I don't think we can ever, we can't, I, I, you can't just take someone's statement about the game, a player's description of their own experience. You can't take that as like a flat representation of reality. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think, I think you have to contextualize it. I think you have to talk about it in relationship to the way that they are understanding and the, the modes in which they understand those things. Um, this is, you were talking earlier about the Celia Pierce book and how different this is from that as, as, as far as, uh, the way they talk about their players, but that's because Pierce has to do the work of saying, well, like, here's how the system understands these players, and here's how they uh, either respond in kind and and uh, without friction to that, or here's how they have really difficult ways of fitting themselves into it. I think that's a critical part of this. I, I don't think you can just, you know, drop someone's description of their play in here and use it as some sort of unmediated, transparent representation of the world. It might be a representation of of how they experience their play, but that's part of a big, broad system. Um, mm-hmm. And you can't just pretend like that system doesn't exist and use this as like, you know, uh, like a chemical reaction uh, or a part of a math problem. It just doesn't, I, I don't think it works that way. Um, and it it leaves me with a lot more questions about like how these things actually work than it, than it does solve problems for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the next chapter after that, the sort of next dimension after kinesthetic, after movement is, uh, spatial involvement, which we've, we've also already said space, spatiality is very important, uh, to, to Kalea's argument. Um, and this is about what you might expect, uh, which is to say that like different games have different spaces in them and different ways of you, uh, different ways of expecting you to, uh, navigate that spatiality and different ways of relating to it. Uh, so, you know, is is the game a corridor, right? Is is it like a, a, a sort of very linear shooter or is it more of a labyrinth or is it uh, multi-cursal corridors or is it a maze? Uh, is it a rhizome? And I do not think that rhizome is used here correctly. No, um, this is a, I, like I wrote in my notes, this is, this is a misrepresentation of the rhizome. This is not the, the concept from Dualism Guitari. This is not the way that it's meant to be meant to be used. Yeah, um, and I don't think it's necessarily worth like getting into to, to, to all of that, but I just yeah. want to point out that like when like this this uh, this chapter says that the way that space works in Mass Effect, and I don't just mean outer space, right? Like the space of the game uh, is a rhizome, um, but it's just like that's it's not like it straight up is not, and I do not understand how rhizome is being understood for it to be mapped onto the way that Mass Effect is working here. It seems that it's because. Um, mass effect often hides loading screens yeah and it allows you like a wide sense of variability of how you can go to place to place but the that's i i think it's just incorrect this is also not how mass effect works as a game so uh yeah this is a really weird thing period because this is like just two paragraphs as a little section and then it like never comes up again so i'm i'm quite confused about why it's in the book but yeah um but yeah there are just all these different modes of doing um uh, there's also a discussion of cognitive mapping here, which is interesting. Right. Um, well, it's like, how do you internalize a game space? Yeah. Which uh, uses uh, its kind of original use um, in the early 20th century, earlier part of the 20th century, and then its most recent use kind of in relationship to game studies, but missing cognitive mapping's most significant contribution, which is Frederick Jameson's work. Um mm-hmm. That it, it, it is bewildering to me because, and this is the reason it's bewildering to me, and this is not, uh, I, I'm not saying this to attack this book. I'm saying this because this would be such a beneficial part to add to the book, which is that Jameson uses cognitive mapping 
to talk about the relationship between space and ideology. Mm -hmm. How does one understand the world that one is in? Uh, How does one, for example, in literary work, how do you navigate a space and think about it in in spatialized terms? How has capitalism over the 20th century, how has it created conditions under which one spatializes narrative and spatializes thought? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, for example, um, Jameson and lots of people use cognitive mapping to talk about uh, how uh, cyberpunk works, right? So mm-hmm. there is, uh, you know, uh, the Tessier Ashpool satellite thing uh, up at the top of Freeside in Neuromancer. It is in the coldness of space. It's at the highest point of human capability. It's far away from the grit and the grime all the way down below, right? So if you've seen the the film The Fifth Element, similar thing there, right? You can go down below the cloud cover and it's gross and disgusting and and you can do crime there and you can go all the way up to what flossed in paradise or whatever it's called mm-hmm. the, the, the uh um a cruise ship in in space right which is for the ultra elite right so these things are spatialized ideology itself is is mapped into the world uh and, and it shapes the way we think about those things so there, this would be a great opportunity to talk about how how uh ideology works its way into these uh involvement models <clears throat> But but that is not done. I would love to read like a very solid cognitive mapping piece about games. I, I know it's showed up in a few different places, not that we've read for the show, but I've seen it. I know that John Bales's book, uh, which is, I think, Mapping the Video Game City, I know that it deals with some of those things, uh, mm-hmm. but but I have not I have not finished that book. So uh, if people want to learn more about this, I bet you can go and check that out. Uh, the next chapter is about shared involvement which is kind of the the social slash multiplayer angle. That is to say, uh, when you are involved in a game, are other people also involved in the game? What is your relationship to them? And, and so on and so forth, right? Does it have multiplayer? Is the multiplayer any good? Is it an MMO? Yep, that that's, that's uh, basically here a couple of things that are interesting. This has a long discussion of something that used to show up in game studies a lot, but I haven't seen very recently. Uh, which is about when Blizzard policed the word gay um, mm-hmm. in in guild recruiting and in guild descriptions. And so uh, so there's this kind of question of like, what is the world that, what are the, um, the coded conditions of like terms of service that Blizzard has? How are those enforced? How do players interact with that? Um, I think there's an interesting discussion of that here. Um, there's also a discussion of like representation and how representation functions that I have some uh, fine grained disagreements with as well. But, uh, if you're interested in how players become involved in MMOs, I think this is an interesting thing. How, how do MMOs get their hooks in you in multiple different ways? Mm-hmm. Um, that this is a pretty good one. Uh, the chapter after that is narrative involvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like, how does the game tell a story and is the story interesting? How does in the same way, how does how does an MMO present multiple hooks for you to uh, share your involvement with other players? Right. Uh, whether that's a guild, whether that's like joining up together for for a, um, an instance or something like that, if it's trading, if it's, uh, you know, the, the auction houses, um, how like what is a game doing uh for that in kind of a narrative context uh and of course this is a huge thing in game studies if we're going to talk about like ludology versus narratology and kaleha's kind of approach here is to say that um to say that stories like or to say that games 
do not have stories is just patently untrue. Um, and that is a thing that certain people have said. So uh, he comes out and says, like, that's just, you know, it, games have stories sometimes. Um, but of course, uh, we probably shouldn't reduce everything about a game uh, to its narrative or a narrative that could be told about it. And so we get this distinction uh, that Kalea is making between kind of games with a scripted narrative um, so something with, you know, like cutscenes, and the, the, the specific example in this chapter is, for the most part, Grand Theft Auto 4. So the, you know, the, the, the scripted content of Grand Theft Auto 4, not only the cutscenes, but like, you know, the, the calls that you're uh, scheduled to receive on your phone that uh, sort of move that plot along, there is that. Uh, and then there is the actual player experience, which gets called uh, alter biography here. Um, which is a mm -hmm. description of the player's time in the game world. And one of the things that uh, Kalea says that I very much agree with is uh, it's not that games do not have stories, right? Systems do not have stories, but that games don't tell stories in the same way other media formats do. Uh, even even though I'm always talking about like, well, you know, these other things, uh, these other media, they'll do this or that. Like this is, I think, how you should approach storytelling in games is that that story is going to be delivered to you in in different ways. Um, one of the things that he focuses on here, he goes back to Salen and Zimmerman, who uh, uh, talk about poker and a game of poker. And they say, you know, like, so poker is a, is a game, it has a rule system, and then they tell a story about a game of poker. Like, what are the various players doing? What are their dispositions and habits? What are kind of the uh, bets that they're making, the assumptions they're making about the other players? And there's, you know, all sorts of drama that can be told here. But uh, Kaleo wants to point out that this is like a narrative of the playing of a game rather than a narrative in the game itself. And we want to be able to make those kinds of distinctions. And so this is why we get, uh, you know, the the scripted narrative versus alter biography. Now, where things do get complicated for me here is that uh, the... Alter biography is not just like a description of what happens in the game world. It is a description of what happens to the player and the way that the player understands and recognizes and responds to a system. Right? Yeah. Poker still doesn't have a story. Yeah. Like that's that's the, the thing that happens here, right? Is that he incorporates part of the Salem and Zimmerman's description of how like we narrativize, you know, our poker game or whatever, but ultimately that is still never part of ultra biography or scripted narrative. The difference is that the, the, the key things here, right. Are that ultra biography is like what the example uses Grand Theft Auto four. It's what I'm doing with my Nico Bellic, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, the weird ways that I'm interacting with that world that's my ultra biography. Whereas Nico Bellic uh, in a cutscene having to do something that's scripted narrative. Mm -hmm. um, so we still end up in a place where, you know, it's like a shadow war is going on with Janet Murray's description of Tetris here. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, this, that I, I think in a, in a, you know, a slightly different universe in, 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 uh, in universe one, one, eight, one, eight, one, 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 two, uh, then uh, this would be uh, the, the Tetris example here, right? Because ultimately what he's saying is like, yeah, we know that those games don't have narrative, but when games do have narrative that gets its hooks in you that way, here are two different ways that it works. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I mean, okay. Yeah. You know, I don't have, I, 
I, uh, I think there is obviously, in the way that you're pointing out, there is obviously a difference between the narrativizing of what we do when we're playing a game and the thing that the game has inside of itself. I, I think that, uh, I, I think we can just say those things, right? I don't know if that, I don't know why, consistently, I don't know why there's like a fight for the heart of video games yeah. about like who, who gets to, what term gets to describe what, right? Right. Um, well, I guess like, yeah, my issue, I guess, with like the term alter biography is that it suggests that you're telling the story of like whoever your avatar is. But when I think about, again, too much future, when I talk about like my play experience with a Fallout game, I will sort of like move between like what's happening in the game and describing it as if it were like a story within the game versus like what is not alter biography right i am not i do not stop being michael when i am playing a game and i do not stop being michael when i am irritated by a system and that re causes me to do something weird in 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 the game or something you know rash um and this is really like i think maybe it comes down to just this quibble with the idea of an alter biography because it's yeah. not like that it, it is my biography. I am describing what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's the thing, too, is that, that there is a flattening effect that's happening here. I mean, it's what you're pointing out. But in specifically that example of Nico Bellic, he's like talking about the dates that he's going on and hanging out with his cousin and going down the alleyway to steal a car. And then in a moment of, you know, unhappiness or rage, punching a civilian. And uh, for me, those the desires from there go from narratively focused to like in my brain focused, right? The the subjective distance between me and the character, uh, you know, some of those I'm conceiving of as quote unquote role playing decisions, right? I mm -hmm. guess uh, Nico would want to do that right now. You know, he mm -hmm. he might want to go hang out with his cousin. That seems like a thing. That's a game system that I'm interested in interacting with, as opposed to, yeah, I'm just interested in kind of screwing around here for a minute and seeing like what these guns do before I have to go do a different mission. Um, there's no, in, in the concept of ultrabiography, there's no way of splitting those things apart. Those are still yeah. narrativized in one device. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, this, this comes down uh, again, I think to many times where like, I just don't experience any form of immersion, apparently. <laughs> like I just don't, I don't do it. Um, uh, I don't experience flow. I don't experience any of that. Um, so I, I don't know what to tell you. Well, do you experience effective involvement? Well, I've had an emotion before. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Effective involvement, affective, A-F-F, uh, and so on, uh, is the name of the next chapter. And this is an interesting um, dimension to look at because... As, as you're kind of alluding to, Cameron, it just comes down to, like, what are the emotions that a game makes you feel? And how does it do that? Mm -hmm. And then sort of the answer to that question, how, how does this work, is, and this is, it was very, this was maybe the most surprising chapter, just, it, I didn't expect it to go this way. It comes down to an issue of genre, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, so we talk about, like, World of Warcraft and the fear games and how these are two different genres, and... Uh, you know, there's like this this fantasy MMO world exploration, and then there's this uh, um, scary, creepy combat focused first person shooter. And so the affects that are associated with these games um, within the former case, right, it's things like it's, you know, it's beautiful and it's engaging or in the latter case, it's it's scary and it's eerie. Um, and something that I don't think I mentioned in our last episode, but Soraya Murray uh, talks about how genre is a form of typified affect, right? Like we come to genres because genres tend to provoke certain types of 
uh, emotional experiences that we like. So like, you know, yeah. a horror movie or a romance film um and so on very and so forth. common argument in film and visual culture studies right this is the classic body genres argument um, mm-hmm. you know kind of expanded uh and you know to to an extent i have n- no issue with that but again we run into this like this is a it might sound like a broken record by this point but um we don't really talk about like how the beautiful is constructed in World of Warcraft and how character or how players are taught to understand what they're seeing as beautiful, right? Like what are the the sort of cultural assumptions that are being locked into about like what makes a vista as you come into a new area look intriguing? Or if we're talking about something that is scary, um, you know, what are kind of the the uh, structures that undergird how we recognize things that are frightening or how we uh, register and express disgust and things like that. Um, and then finally, and, and this chapter ends up making games feel really weirdly subservient uh, that, and I'm just going to quote this because it's uh, an interesting little bit. This is page 146. The attraction toward the aesthetic dimensions of games is often informed by expectations born from other media. Digital games are not only game systems, but, more importantly, are digitally mediated experiences that aim to satisfy the desires generated by movies, literature, or free-ranging fantasy. So the argument here, right, is that, like, uh, a very clear example is the fear games, which borrow a lot from uh, the Japanese horror boom or like the Japanese, like the remake of Japanese horror films for, for, um, you know, Anglophone audiences in the early two thousands after the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the claim here is that uh, people see something like the ring and they're like, ah, oh, damn, like that's a, that's a situation. And then the game slips in and is like, Hey, you want that situation, but in a way that is like sort of more, you know, involving or reactive to you. Here you go. Here's fear. Uh, which I think is an interesting point. This idea that what games do is they, uh, reformat fantasies that are generated in, in other media or in other cultural arenas, and they make them, uh, interactive or something like that in a certain way. And the thing that I think could make this even more interesting is if we start thinking about how games do this to themselves, when we start thinking about something like a Souls-like as a genre, right? What I want is not my uh, feelings of watching a movie, right? Or like doing a heist, like I see a heist film and then I want to play a heist game. I have a certain type of game that it in and of itself, right, generates kind of effective structures that I want to revisit in different contexts. Yeah. I mean, this is a great, another great moment where ideology could be talked about, right? About how mm-hmm. these things happen and how they do it. I mean, what, what was just described of, of Anglophone remakes of Japanese horror films. I mean, that that is a whole broad system of capitalist production that ultimately ends up producing in the argument here, it produces a familiar form of, of horror gameplay that we then go to specific games to experience particular emotions, right? I mean, it just it seems like the the uh, burden of argument here is much higher than is actually or much larger than is actually being engaged with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't I, I don't know quite about this. This line of argument would not be the one that I would take. I've written about this before in relationship to Dark Souls. Right. And that has much more for me, it has much more to do with um a kind of movement of uh, a diagrammatic. So what is the shape of genre and what do we think that it does? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, because th what this ultimately doesn't get to, if we're talking about effective involvement, if we're talking about emotions generated by a thing, including just a pleasant emotion, there's nothing here that would explain why we believe ray tracing just looks better. Mm. Right? There, there's an aesthetic value or there's an emotional value of like, damn, playing control with ray tracing looks good. And I, like, I've seen, I've seen it. I, I haven't played it with ray tracing personally. But, you know, I see it versus, you know, playing it on my, my PS4 that sounds like a jet engine taking off every time I turn it on. <laughs> um, and I don't, I, you know, I don't feel an emotional difference there. Uh, whereas the beautiful here, this, this kind of categorization of beautiful or, or, or um, the way that aesthetics are meant to generate particular emotional capability, there should be some sort of uh, uh, generative difference here, a difference that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um and and there is not so or for me there is not and so um i don't know you know what what i then need is an explanation of why ideologically i am in a place that is different from someone else who finds the vistas of world of warcraft to be the most beautiful thing that i've ever seen mm -hmm. um you know why is that plastic bag flying around why is it the most beautiful thing we've ever seen talking about this philosopher uh t-u-a-n tuan maybe tuan mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but uh, uh, Tuan's argument follows postmodern thinking and framing reality as always relative to context and interpretation. If reality is relative, one may reasonably argue that a phenomenon defined by the avoidance of reality is also relative to context. Once the universality of the real is undermined, so is the universality of its avoidance. If escapism is relative to context, it stops making sense to label any specific type of activity or artifact as being in itself escapist. And so uh, there's, there's, there's a section in here that's about escapism and how that functions. Uh, but just what I want to point out here is what's being marked as postmodern here is literally just a manual Kant in the middle of the Enlightenment. It is like a core of Enlightenment thinking. Um, and uh, we shouldn't throw the word postmodern around. What about chapter nine, Michael? Uh, chapter nine is about ludic involvement. And this is essentially... Um, this is a fairly capacious uh, dimension of involvement. It's kind of like... How do you interface with, like, on the one hand, the rule set of the game? Another way of thinking about this is that it's uh, getting at what we, what we sometimes call, like, the possibility space, right? What is a game allowing you to do, and how involved are you in, in kind of its, its structuring of, of those allowances? Uh, we begin with, by, by returning to Calois, actually, and the distinction between um, Paideia and Ludus. Uh, so sort of the idea of Paideia being uh, like total free play, right? The child's play is, is uh, literally what uh, Calois is tracing it back to, like play of sort of pure imagination, no necessary like strictures or rules versus Ludus, which is a, a play situation with very specific rules. Um, the sort of distinction that uh, Kaleja brings through the book and through this argument is that uh, all digital games are necessarily in some way ludic, right? They are, they can never be paideic because games are coded uh, objects, right? They are, they, they exist in the world. They have code within them that uh, dictates how they operate. And so therefore there is never any true free play. What do you think of that as an assertion? It is a question. I, I mean, I guess my, because I wrote something about this similarly in my notes too. I guess the way that I approach this question is from the other side, which mm -hmm. is, is there any true free play anywhere? 
Meaning that is an ad hoc rule uh, in the moment of a game. Uh, Is that any different here? So, for example, um, you know, if I say, oh, I'm I'm a jet engine now and you're a bird and I'm going to suck you up into me. I don't know why that would be. Uh, okay. The game. Uh, okay. Going back to the early weirder elements of the, of the yeah, show. Yeah, we're, we're okay. you know, it's, it's early in the morning. Okay. Uh, so, so if that's like the, the, you know, the thing, right. Um, that's, that's an ad hoc rule for, for the thing. I think even, uh, you know, animal play, which often gets talked about here, you know, if we were looking again at something like Brian Sutton Smith, even that, uh, around when the informal rule of, we are not doing violence to one another. We are playing. I think mm-hmm. even that would would constitute some sort of like one increment toward ludus than the absolute pure capital C chaos of Paideia, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that just pure physical play is obviously girded by rules and bracketed by rules. We call those physics and we call those chemistry. Um, so Michael, when, when you and I are, are outdoors and we're playing our game and, and we're playing planes, we're not playing mm-hmm. jet engine and, and bird, we're playing planes. <laughs> and Michael, you say, I'm a, I'm a Cessna. And you uh-huh. like get your arms out and you're, you're zooming around in, in the, in the yard. And uh-huh. I say, Michael, I am a, uh, you know, an, an F5 fighter jet. I cost $2 billion. <laughs> and, uh, but weirdly enough, miraculously enough, I do not transform into a jet then and then fly into the sky, um, <laughs> right? Even even though that is the the play of what we're doing, and so I, I think that that this this kind of like pressure on Kawa is not uh, a useful pressure because we can always find hardware brackets and we can always find ways in which the rule systems of quote unquote free player are compromised in some way. Um, and so I don't know, like, I don't know, this is the letter of the law. I don't know if it's in the spirit of the law is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Right. Yeah. I don't know if this is the spirit from which Kawa is arguing. I mean, and I think the, the other way of thinking about this, right, is that, uh, Paidea as totally unlimited play is, is kind of an ideological fiction, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's what makes people get really upset about No Man's Sky, right? Mm-hmm. Because they thought No Man's Sky was going to be this kind of weird Paideaic experience, uh, but even in the real world, like there's like the, the stage on which we play is already preset in certain ways. And so it, it raises the question of like, well, what makes, uh, like how, how is it that the fact that software is a coded object, right? Like, how is that actually truly different from, um, the fact that like, I did not invent the rules of baseball. And when I play baseball with my friends, uh, they're going to get really weirded out if I start uh, changing all of those rules and invent blaze ball or something. Wait, hold on. You didn't invent baseball. Oh, oh, well, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. You had to come to this podcast to find out that I, Michael Lutz did not invent uh, uh, baseball. I've got so many emails to send. I've been telling everyone that you invented baseball. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I got it. I need to get the hall of fame on the line right now. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> he like went to the like the ba- the baseball hall of fame website and saw that i wasn't mentioned and then sent them <laughs> yeah, a, that in a long correction letter <laughs> all these citations uh, um but but yeah so this it, but but this kind of ends up um the the chapter ends up being kind of an explanation an interesting explanation i think of of the ways that games set parameters for how you become involved with the game spacey part of it so 
uh, particularly around questions of goals, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a long section here about Fallout 3 and like goal-oriented oriented behavior and how it's a fairly free game and we're playing it right now for our show too much future it's a fairly free and open game but that that has some bounding boxes that you run into as far as like what the the story asks of you and then fulfilling those requirements kind of pushes you along um the the game proper so i I thought those things were interesting there's a long section about flags and like iconography i guess in the game that i wasn't quite sure why there was a discussion happening about like what has meaning in the game space here, but I guess it has to do with like external versus internal factors. Yeah, it's sort of um, how how does something uh, change how you interpret it or understand it within kind of a ludic context versus how you might understand it outside of that. So the argument being made about the flag is uh, when you're playing Call of Duty 4 and you're playing a game of Capture the Flag, the... the and, the flag is not a national symbol. It becomes like a game object, right? It is what he calls a, a ludic objective. And it's about sort of the organization of the mechanics and so on and so forth. And just for the record, I'm not sure I agree with this. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember whether or not the flags in Call of Duty 4 were like national flags. They're, uh, they're not. Okay. <laughs> they're Somehow, like team-based flags. There's like, that's, you, know, you know, basically, quote unquote, uh, terrorists and anti-terrorists. I know that's, you know, from uh, Counter-Strike, but same idea. They are abstractions. Right. And what's weird about this part of the argument is that he sort of seems to suggest that, like, when you're playing Capture the Flag, you are playing with a national flag. It's it said, like, the flag becomes less, less a national symbol and more of a ludic objective, which organizes the game mechanics of the particular game mode. The flag is not is thus not interpreted as a symbol of national identity, but uh, becomes the locus of a competitive struggle between two factions, etc., etc., etc. But it is not made clear, like, it is, like, this flag that is not, like, the U.S. flag or whatever... Uh, is talked about as if it might be the U.S. flag. Well, it's, of course, of course, this flag that is in a game does not represent like the United States because it's not the U.S. flag. Uh, but on the other hand, right, I think that there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Call of Duty and sort of like, let's say, you know, the macro level of playing that game um, that gets you to understand certain things as being maybe closer to national identity than other things. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm trying to look while you're talking for like the flags, and I cannot find one that looks anything like a national flag from any of the versions of Call of Duty. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think what you're, the way you're constructing it is that it's meant to stand in for, and so we understand it as. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, the, the argument kind of breaks down a little bit. And then that brings us to uh, the last chapter, which is from immersion to incorporation. You have a lot of notes on this, and I, I do not. I have one note for this whole chapter. <laughs> uh, okay, so to go back to, like, Borges, right? Uh, people uh, do not necessarily become immersed in, in Talon, even as Talon takes over the real world. Um, what happens is people start act living and acting as if Talon is real and that they exist within Talon. Um and so this is where incorporation, uh, as as uh, Kalea's kind of guiding metaphor, I think, is is useful, uh, because what he is saying is not that when when you are immersed, you are not like literally transported to somewhere else, but you sort of choose to graft onto your ex- your your perspective of the world um, this highly technologized and mediated frame uh, of a computer game. 
Um, and it becomes as uh, like almost an extension of yourself. So incorporation means uh, like quite literally etym- etymologically, right, to be brought into the body. Mm-hmm. Um, that it is it is in some ways like affixed to your body, but also incorporation operates in in this other way where the game constructs a space for you to to also sort of inhabit it. So here's the actual definition. Uh, incorporation is, quote, the absorption of a virtual environment into consciousness, yielding a sense of habitation, which is supported by the systemically upheld embodiment of the player in a single location as represented by the avatar. And this is where I think this argument, um, you know, gets a little uh, snagged up by what we were talking about earlier with uh, kind of the the emphasis on spatiality or a certain form of spatiality. Uh, does this mean that you cannot become incorporated in a game where, like in Tetris, right, where you don't have an avatar, where it's kind of like you're looking at a, a, a field of objects and interacting with them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I think in, in your notes, you mentioned Minesweeper, too. And yeah, I mean, I, the implication here, I think, is much like poker, right? These are these are games in which you can you can have a good time, but you're not incorporated mm-hmm. because there's no question of immersion. Right. But that but if incorporation gets underneath immersion, people talk. I mean, the Tetris effect. Quite literally, right? right. I mean, people talk about being immersed in these kinds of games, and yet it seems like the definition of incorporation, which is meant to subtend, you know, to get underneath, to to come before, to be more important than immersion, it seems like it excludes some of the things that people most often talk about being immersed in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, and um, like I, I am not opposed to this like i like this idea of incorporation and like Mm -hmm. uh you know for for very sort of basic reasons which is that there's a whole lot of work that has been done on these ideas of incorporation in in my field of early modern uh literature studies where issues of incorporation uh and sort of like ontology are at the core of all of the religious disputes Mm -hmm. that are happening in this time right like how does god like come into uh being uh when the priest performs the sacrament of communion and that sort of thing right not like coming into being but right how does how does um you know like god uh uh become present in the host how does transubstantiation happen does it happen uh when people eat the host what happens to that sort of thing so there's this there's this whole like lineage of uh thinking about incorporation in sort of theological and uh philosophical ways uh that i find very very attractive here and at the same time um Again, as as with so many things in this book, I kind of wish it had gone a little bit further back and also maybe a little bit further forward in its own thinking uh, uh, to, uh, you know, maybe complicate some of some of what it's trying to get at. Yeah. And and I think a lot of the the friction here comes from from Kalea's kind of distinction between uh, involvement and incorporation. Right. Where you can be you, I, I think, I guess, in, in the system, right, playing Tetris is just going to be involvement mm-hmm. just across the board, right? Because it doesn't have all these, many of the elements they're talking about. Uh, you're not embodied in any kind of way. You're not given avatarness. There's no spatiality to it. Um, you're just involved. And I, I don't think involvement is being treated negatively here, right? It's just a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But to me, this is a weird example to go to, but things that trouble me about this, right, is uh, I wrote my notes, The Left Hand of Darkness, right? So I just taught The Left mm-hmm. Hand of Darkness last spring. Uh, it's a novel that that not quite every chapter, but pretty often goes from uh, chapters that are highly uh, evocative, like uh, religious or mythological content, folklore, um, mm-hmm. about this kind of science fictional world that that uh, the novel takes place on, Gethin, and uh, and then highly focalized, right? So so perspectival chapters from first person perspective of two different characters, uh, Jin Lee I, and then. Um, gosh, I'm forgetting the uh, another character, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Giffinian, and uh, but but what's interesting about the the book is that I think it's really kind of hitting a lot of the things about incorporation because it's a book that requires you to read these things dialectically. You you have to read this folklore and figure out how it fits into the the kind of ideological universe of these characters. You have to strongly identify with them because the whole the novel works by putting by basically these two characters are talking past one another, the entire novel, and no one realizes that and it has like mm-hmm. truly terrible uh, implications. But the reason they are talking past one another is that one character understands and, and is informed by all this folklore and the other does not. So we are through the act of reading asked to embody the kind of cognitive process of Jin Lee I, this ambassador character, in order to figure out what the hell is going on in this world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a little bit like a mystery or a murder mystery at the end, because about two thirds of the way through the book, you're like, oh my gosh, there was all this information I had. Uh, You know, uh, Mr. Detective, you had all the clues. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, oh no. Um, but, uh, but, but that's all to say, right? So all these pieces of incorporation I can see, uh, that are outlined in the book or that are outlined in Kalea's book, I can see at work while reading the left hand of darkness and reading it closely and teaching students how to read that book. Cause it's so weird. Um, and I don't really think that, that what we would call just mere involvement, a kind of like Barthian, you know, studium analysis, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think there's something else going on. So even here at the end, I, I'm having some like pretty pretty severe friction. Like I'm not represented by an avatar, but I'm taking on a very particular subject position that then runs into my own cognitive process of interacting with the same information that character is doing. So there's something here about non, about alignment with subjectivity, I think that is missing, that is... Mm covered over by discussion of the relationship between a player and an avatar that I actually don't think is doing enough work to cover that whole space. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. It's certainly a productive book. I never would have thought about these issues beyond that, you know, if yeah. I hadn't read this thing. No, like, I, I mean, I said at the beginning, I was interested in reading a book that was sort of all about this question of immersion, uh, which you and I have both come out kind of hard against in previous episodes. And I'm still glad that I read this. Uh, And as I've said multiple times, there are parts of this argument that approach immersion in what I think is a far more productive way uh, than like, to some extent, right, precisely, precisely the arguments that it is trying to uh, improve upon or or in some ways, like reset the terms of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think anyone, uh, I think that if I, I would discourage anyone from just uh, you know, dropping a citation to this. And and this is a hugely cited book, by the way. Part of, I don't think we said this at the beginning, but part of the reason why we're looking at it is that 
you know, often when we talk about classics in the field, quote unquote, or like big books in the field, those are books that we immediately, that many people recognize and kind of can tell you the argument of. So for example, if we were talking about persuasive games, many game studies academics could tell you what procedural rhetoric is, you know, in mm -hmm. a general sense, or they could probably tell you uh, the general gist of what Janet Murray is doing in Hamlin on the Holodeck, these kind of big classic books. This book I was looking on Google Scholar has more than 600 citations. I've never seen anyone in a book like work through the argument of this book. You know, I've never seen like a big meaty paragraph, I don't think, that mm -hmm. is dealing with the argument of this book. And so my vibe for that is that this is a book that people often are citing when they're talking about immersion or they're talking about disagreements in immersion. And it's the kind of thing you drop in. I think that this book would be very useful for people who are making a long form argument or are trying to, to piece together their own argument from these ideas. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you should just like drop into a citation apparatus and just assume people are going to be on board with because it's, you know, for being about 200 pages, it's deeply complicated. And, and uh, you know, as this show has probably demonstrated, there's a lot to work through. There's a lot of fine grained distinctions that are both being made and should be made, you know, in, in contrast with the book. So what are we reading next time, Cameron? Well, we had talked about one thing beforehand, but uh, as you and I have talked about uh, a billion times, uh, September is the worst month of the year for me. Mm -hmm. T.S. Uh, Eliot said that. Yep, that's the famous line uh, from The Wasteland, of course. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> September uh, is the worst month for me. Yep, September, it's the worst month for me. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, but, uh, so we had already talked about one book and I'm going to try to pivot here, actually, even though I brought up the original book. Um, so earlier we were talking about John Bales's book. I, I think I said, I think I called it mapping the video game city. I don't know where mm -hmm. I got that from. The name of the book is ideology and the virtual city, video games, power fantasies, and neoliberalism. Oh, okay. It's a it's a fairly small book, in, in, in not in argument, but in size. Uh, it's a zero book, so it's it's kind of that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to pitch to you, Michael, that we read that book next month. Let's. It's very new. It's from 2019, uh, mm -hmm. and it's in a universe that both of us are very familiar with. Uh, so very much a uh, Zizek, Mark Fisher, Frederick Jameson kind of book. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. So so your favorite. Okay. Um. So I think we're going to do that. Let's do that for next month. I it's it's always hard for me to to get a book in in September, and so I think a smaller book that but one that I'm really interested in reading. I, I got a copy of it when it came out, and I just haven't had time to sit with it. Um, but I'm very interested in reading it. So let's let's do that. Um, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter.com at Warren Is Dead. Got anything to plug? Uh, obviously I want to plug our new range touch show, uh, just King things where Cameron and I, uh, read the books of Stephen King in publication order and talk about them. Uh, it's a lot like this show, except, uh, about vampires and stuff. Um, uh, so there's that to plug. And at some point soon, probably, uh, I'll have some video content up on the range touch YouTube channel with a, a special let's play, um, that I'll be doing. And also Cameron will be my, my co-commentator for that. Mm hmm. I'm not, not late. Do you want to say what it is? We've, we have I, hinted a million times, but you oh, could, you yeah. could stealth announce it here yeah. to see if okay. people actually get to the plugs at the end. <laughs> uh i'm going to be doing uh with cameron a let's play of golden glitches game elsinore uh which is a game about playing ophelia from hamlet and uh 
trying to figure out both what is going on in in Hamlet, the Shakespeare play, and uh, stopping or in in some way otherwise affecting uh, what is happening in Hamlet so you get out of a time loop. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. We've recorded recorded our first episode already. It's a surprising game, I will say. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about it before we're... So if if you want the flavor, Michael has played the game, understands it very well, has recorded all this footage, and then I just watch that, and then I react to it. And so mm-hmm. that, that's created, I think, already some some uh, interesting interesting moments. Um, things I have to plug. I have a new essay that I alluded to earlier in the episode. I have a new essay in uh, uh, Paradoxa, which is a science fiction journal edited by uh, Allison Sperling. The issue is, uh, and it's on climate fictions. I have an essay on a typology, so different kinds of climate games. Um, so if you're interested in that, I talk about affect quite a bit in it, uh, affective games, uh, not in the sense that, that, uh, the Kaleha book does, um, as well as kind of systematic games and what I call direct intervention games. So games that have you, um, directly intervening in some sort of simulation of, uh, ecology. If you are interested in that, you can give it a Google, um, or, or, uh, uh, you know, you can purchase the essay, you can purchase the journal. The journal issue is actually huge. Uh, it's well worth your time. There's another essay on video games. There's an essay on the Anthropocene and, um, uh, gosh, what do you call it? And, uh, Breath of the Wild. Sorry, I just couldn't, I was thinking, <laughs> I was like, you know, the Zelda game with the shield. Um, oh yeah, that one. But uh, Jerry Canavan did that one. And there's also uh, an interview that Stina Attenberry did with um, uh, Elizabeth Lapinse, the, the game designer. So uh, there's quite a bit of game content in it. I think it's like a 400 page special issue. It's absolutely massive. It's half essays and half interviews with uh, um, uh, practitioners. And that's really cool. So if you're interested in anything like that, I think you can buy a copy you know, fairly cheaply. And uh, if you have institutional access, you can, of course, use that. And if you're just looking for the essays, I bet someone could probably find that for you. So uh, please check that out. It's a really, really cool issue. I'm very happy to be involved in it. Uh, It's been reviewed already, which is, uh, especially issues being reviewed is not super common, I don't think, but it's been incredibly well-reviewed. Lots of nice blurbs about it. Um, And uh, if you're interested in the games part or just climate fiction in, in a broad, massive sense, um, this is uh, certainly something for you. So please check that out. Uh, And uh, as I said last time, I'm still working on my book on speculation and games. If you have a cool science fiction game that you want to tell me about that I might not know about already, uh, please send that to me uh, on Twitter or on Discord. Probably our range touch podcast at the end of the month will have me talking about Soma for quite a long time with Danny. So if you're interested in hearing me talk about Soma, you can go too. Look how I'm fitting it all in. Mm-hmm. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support this show uh, and everything else we do here at Range Touch. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get a newsletter that just tells you what we were up to that month. At $3 a month, you can get a podcast feed for Too Much Future or a show about Fallout. And you can get the notes for this show. So if you're interested in all the things we didn't get to talk about in the Kaleha book, uh, you can get our notes at $3 a month. And at $5 a month, you get access to special Range Touch podcast that I do with Danny every month where we just talk about the things that we've been doing. People really enjoy that show, I think. Uh, and you can also get access to Just King Things bonus episodes. Michael and I have already done one where we talk about the 2013 remake of Carrie. People really liked that. Uh, people really enjoyed hearing us talk about Carrie. And uh, we've got another really good bonus episode coming up for you uh, this coming month. So, um, you know, if you like the show and you get $5 worth of enjoyment out of it, 
just go to patreon.com slash range touch, throw $5 in the month and uh, watch us soar. At, at $5,000 a month, uh, I think I'll be able to turn into a jet plane. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's almost certainly <laughs> idea unlocked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'll be able to transcend physics and turn into a jet plane. I'm like 99% sure that's possible. So uh, anything else you want to talk about here, Michael? Uh, only that I want all of our listeners out there to remember until next time that the social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs> <laughs>